All right, this morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of John, but we've taken a detour, if, if you recall. And the reason we're taking a detour is so that we can focus on clarity really in two areas. And that is, number one, what is the gospel? You know, we talk about that word a lot in church. We use that word gospel. What, is it, what do we mean by when we say it? Well, we base our understanding of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A simple message, it involves a person and that person's work. The person is Jesus Christ. His work is that he died for you and rose again. That's the gospel. We should be able to share that life-giving message in under a sentence, in under two seconds. If someone's dying on the concrete out there, they got hit by a car and they got 30 seconds to live, we should be able to share the gospel. You know, one, one time a lady was criticizing the message I was sharing, which, which was fine. And I just asked her this question. I said, well, what would you tell somebody they had 30 seconds to live, how to get to heaven. What would you tell them? Go. She said, well, I would tell them to read, you know, the Bible. And I was like, all 66 books. Wow. That's a, I mean, if someone could do that, I think they earn heaven. I, they, I, I, would, I would make an argument. They deserve to be there, right? But it, it, it's, a, it's a foolish concept when the, the message of salvation, the power of God to salvation is identified in this message. Christ died for your sins and he rose again on the third day. That's the power of God to salvation. And one of the other things that we want to clarify in this study, and this is what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, is clarifying what the biblical response to that message is. And this is where we go haywire. And this is where for many of us, we're getting our toes stepped on. Bear, hang with me. I'm not trying to offend, step on toes, but my passion in life is to allow Jesus Christ to receive all the glory that he is due for what he accomplished. And I just, I just have a personal problem when we are using uh, unbiblical cliches that you can't even find in the Bible that have this effect of robbing him of his glory. That, that bothers me on a, on a very personal level because you know I was, I was a kid that grew up in church. I grew up hearing about Jesus. In fact, he meant uh, as much to me growing up at times as the wallpaper on our bathroom wall, meaning not very much. And I went out and I chased what was in the world and I experienced certain things of the world. And I will tell you this, I absolutely gagged on what the world had to offer. It doesn't offer anything of substantial value. And you know, many of us we spend our entire life still wrestling with that truth. And as we said it, when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes years ago, isn't it ironic how, how clarity of mind when you hit 80 or 85 and you're on your deathbed, we start to realize what's actually important, what means something in this world. But the entire time leading up to that, we are just squirrel ceiling fan. Our eyes are just everywhere, right? I mean, we're, we get so distracted. And so oftentimes this is what happens with the gospel response. We, we have this idea that God wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. God is very impressed with Jesus Christ. Why aren't we as impressed as God the Father is? How do I know he's impressed? Because he raised him from the dead. He's never done that with anybody else in history up until this point. And because he raised him from the dead to live forever, guess what? Those who trust in him will also be raised from the dead and live forever. That's the benefit of the salvation that he provides. And see, all of these gospel response cliches, they have the effect of bumping the spotlight off of Jesus Christ and putting the spotlight 
on ourselves. And you know, Satan wins when that happens. I think sometimes we have this view of Satan. He's this red demon with horns and a pitchfork, and he just wants you to commit the most grossest, vilest sins on planet earth. And you know what? I do think he enjoys that. But you know what else I think he enjoys? Just, just distracting you. Just subtly distracting you. And in this area of salvation, this is exactly what he's accomplished because this gospel message and the response of the gospel is under satanic attack. And you might be like, why, you know, why are you making such a big deal about this? Why are you just, you know, because it's under satanic attack. Do you know, I had a dear friend of mine recently share with me that he sat in church for some 40 years of his life. And because of the cliche that we're going to look at today, he was not even saved. Got his Awana badges, hit Sunday school every week, went to Wednesday night every week. And because of the cliche that we're going to look at, this morning, he, is, he was confused for some 40 years of his life. Until someone shared, wouldn't you expect if you went to church, you'd hear good news about Jesus Christ? He didn't even hear it in church. I mean, he heard about Jesus. He knew Jesus died. He knew Jesus raised. But no one had ever put it together as to why that would be significant to him. See, God's got a solution for you twofold problem. You've got a debt you cannot pay, that's death. You deserve that payment, or you deserve that consequence, by the way. The wages of sin is death, that's what the Bible says. Jesus died for you so that you don't have to pay that payment. What great news. And all of religion wants to focus on what you must do and continue to do to pay a debt that Jesus has already paid. This is what is mind-blowing about these false gospel response cliches. God is focused on an event in history that happened in the past. Religion wants you to focus on what you must do in the present and what you must continue to do in the future to stay saved. And I don't know about you, my eyes are locked on the man who died for me 2,000 years ago. My eyes are locked on the man who rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. My eyes are locked on the man who's now seated at the Father's right hand, waiting for the day that he comes for me. That's where my eyes are locked. And I hope your eyes are locked there. And I hope you're persuaded. And I hope you have full confidence that what Jesus did for you is enough, that you won't get distracted. Like, like we have this tendency to get distracted about all these other things. I love the fact that God wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. I, I kind of like Jesus. <laughs> I, and I, and I kind of love him. The more that I find out about him, I love him more. And I hope that's true of you. That's our goal in this church is just to say, look, look at Jesus today. Look what this man does. Look who this man is. And we hope that's a big encouragement. You know, some of the cliches that have bumped the spotlight off of Christ that we've talked about, those of you that weren't here, if you, if you want to listen to these, you can go back on our YouTube channel. But false response cliche, give your heart, give your life to Christ. Uh, number two, believe and confess your sins. Number three, pray the sinner's prayer. We hear that. Uh, a lot in churches. Number four, ask for forgiveness. Big in our day, we talked about why that's not a biblical response to the gospel. Asking Jesus into your heart, again, another uh, very popular cliche. And then finally, the last time we were here, we looked at making a public profession of faith, and we went through Romans 10, 9, and 10, which is often a misused, misunderstand passage. And so this morning, I want to look at one of the most um, misused gospel response cliches in our day. And that is this gospel response cliche of repenting of 
or repenting from your sins. This comes up a lot. And, and, and I've actually got nothing wrong with the word repentance. Why, why not? Because it's in the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's not the issue. So don't hear me saying that out of the chute. But what you're going to find, what's really interesting is this phrase, repent of your sins or repent from your sins, is never found in the Bible. You I might be shocked by that. You'd think it was on every other page, the way that some people emphasize this word. And so let me just provide a couple of introductory thoughts on this word. And again, depending on how you view the meaning of this word, you may come in this morning and have a very sound biblical understanding of this word. Some of you may come in and just have the, the, the normal cultural understanding of this word. And if you do, I'm not trying to criticize you, but if you'll give me 45 minutes, I'd like to present why I don't think the cultural understanding is, is an accurate one. If you'll kind of give me that grace this morning, most of you will because you won't get up and leave, but because <laughs> you're too nice. We're, we're in Georgia, so you're, you're in the South. You can't do that to a speaker. But hopefully just, just kind of bear with me and allow me to develop this, this concept a little bit. But if you have a common cultural misunderstanding of the word, repent, can you see that if that's your understanding, how it bumps the spotlight from a finished work accomplished in the past? and puts a focus on what you must do today or what you must do ongoing in the future? Because what's the common cultural understanding of the word repent? You get turn from your sin, turn or burn, right? Turn from your sins. You got to feel sorry for your sins. You got to regret your sins, all of these things. Can you see if that is the response required to be saved, how it takes the focus off of a finished work in the past, puts it on what you must do today or going forward in the future? And automatically it bumps the spotlight. And so let's just kind of look at this a little bit more. Uh, I mentioned this. You might be uh, surprised to know that these two phrases you can't find in your Bible. We used to, when we went to Africa, uh, Liberia, the first time uh, we taught this to the pastors there, we put a $100 bill, which is a lot of money. For, I mean, it's a lot of money for us. Well, not as much anymore, right? But it was a lot of money for them. We put it on the table and said, if you can find either one of these phrases in your Bible and show it to us, we'll give you this $100 bill. Well, these guys spent hours looking for it. I mean, they're, they're, they're going for it. You know, it's not there. The word repentance is there, but this phrase is not there. And so repent is biblical. The phrase, unfortunately, is not. I'm going to say something here. It's going to sound contradictory, but just allow me to develop this concept a little bit. The word of God does not demand repentance from sins in order to be saved. But every person who has ever believed upon Jesus Christ has repented of something. And you're like, that's kind of weird. Like, it seems like you're contradicting yourself. Well, let me define the word, and I think this will make sense. I'll come back to this later. Because the Bible clearly uses the word repent, which is the verb form, and repentance, which is the noun form. So the question becomes, what does it mean to repent? That's really what we're after here. For those of you that grew up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, would the real repentance stand up, right? This is kind of... The old game show to tell the truth or the younger generation, you know, you can insert Slim Shady, I guess, in that one. So. But anyways, would the real repentance stands up? What does repentance mean? Well, I'm going to just talk quickly about the verb and the noun form. Metanoeo is the verb. Metanoia is the noun. And, and even though you don't know, know Greek, you can see some similarities between those two words and see how they're related. But it's a compound word. Meta meaning a change of place or condition. Naeo meaning to exercise the mind, to think, or to comprehend, okay? 
So when you put those two together, you've got a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of thought. But as this point says, we, we, we put these two words together in a compound word. But we also have to consider, this is a big five-cent theological word or, or actually just language word, etymological usage. What does that mean? In other words, when I put this word together, how is it actually used in language, in conversation? Because it's not always wise to take a compound word because compound words don't always mean those two words put together. I'll give you an example of that just in a second. But when we put these two together with its etymological usage, it means to change your mind. It means to have an afterthought. It means to reflect something that's different from the former thought. But, but as I mentioned, you can't do that with every compound word. Hogwash. Does that mean we're going to go out and wash a hog? No, it just means what you said is, you know, malarkey. How about use another big word? Hogwash, right? Jackpot. A dude named Jack, a pot of stew. I mean, it's just, so there's certain compound words you can't put together like that, okay? This is actually one that you can, and the reason we know it is because of its etymological usage, okay? Of course, how did people use this word? What did they intend when they used this word? And what they intended to communicate was a revolution of thought, okay? A, a great intellectual change. That's what they intended by this word, and we'll show that as we go forward. Literally, the, the mind has entered upon a new stage, something beyond its initial understanding. That's what we're, we're talking about when we talk about these two Greek words. The idea is there's a new set of circumstances that's been presented to the mind or circumstances or events that you've already considered, but now you're convinced of. You, you have a change of thought based on new information. And that's why when we look at the biblical word metanoia or metanaeo, it's directly tied to biblical revelation a gaining of new information that has now persuaded you to the point that it pushes the old way you thought out and now you believe this information. That's biblical repentance. It's a change of mind. It's a change of thinking. You're persuaded now of something that you weren't persuaded of before you heard the information, okay? This is biblical repentance. But like we've said, there's a lot of current misunderstandings in this word. So what are some of those? Well, you probably have heard this, feeling sorry for sin. What is biblical repentance? Well, you got to feel sorry for your sin. Do I got to see tears? Yeah, you probably, tears are probably good to show because that shows that you really repented, right? By the way, all these things that I'm pulling up, if you just Google repentance, all these pictures come up. This is, this is our cultural understanding, we're looking at the Greek language, and I want to develop this more. Don't just take my word for it. We're looking at the Greek language. It's a change in thinking, and already the first two definitions is a change in emotion. It's emotional remorse. And as we're going to see, turning 180 degrees, again, a picture that if you just Google repentance, that picture is going to come up on Google Images, or turning from sin, turning to God. And can you notice what's happened in the understanding of the word? We've gone from a change of thinking to what? a change in emotional response, and a change in behavior. You see how that, that shift has happened uh, in our cultural understanding. Unfortunately, we tend to incorporate this visible, observable, action-oriented change in behavior or an emotional response, and we impregnate this, these words, metanoia and metanaeo, with these meanings. We just do. 
This is our culture. By the way, it's not just American culture. This is worldwide. I go to Africa, and I say, what does the word repent mean? It's these three meanings, ultimately, is what they're saying. Emotional response, change in behavior. And it, and it simply is designed to reflect a change of mind. Now, by the way, can a change of thinking lead to a change of behavior? Yeah, of course. Should a change of thinking lead to a change of behavior? I would say yes, oftentimes it should. But for every one of you that has adopted a a New Year's resolution, you understand the the problem and why it's not automatic. You know, we change our mind about a lot of things come January 1st. And then we get on the treadmill for two weeks and we change our mind about a lot of things on January 14th, again, okay? Okay. We start a diet. We've changed our mind. And then two weeks later, you know, someone wants to take you out to Red Robin. And they're like, let's get a stack of onion rings. And I'm fixing to change my mind again about that diet, right? So, so, so sometimes behavior follows. Sometimes it doesn't, though. But the, the Greek words have nothing to do with the behavior that follows. That's separate. That's subsequent to this change of mind. By the way, what's really interesting is most people, and you'll hear this a lot, and you'll recognize this when I say it, most people tend to connect adverbs to the word repent. And and the reason they do that is they're qualifying the repentance. And you'll hear people say, did they truly repent? Did they really repent? Did they genuinely repent? And you know, when they use those adverbs, by the way, the Bible makes no such qualification. Just saying. The Bible doesn't make that qualification. Just like the Bible doesn't say she was kind of pregnant, right? It's just just one of those words, like you either are or you ain't, you know, and repentance is the same way. There's no qualification there. But when people do qualify it, what are they basing their evaluation on? Observable behavior, observable actions, or observable emotional response. Isn't that interesting? So the word has kind of taken us in that direction. So this, this morning, in this next couple of slides, I want to just take a quick deep dive, and it's going to be quick and deep. How, how does that go together? I don't know. But we're, in other words, I'm not going to develop this fully. I just want to give a couple of points on Greek etymology of these two words, metanoia, metanoeo, just so you can see how they're used. Now, those of you that have done any study in language, in fact, you don't even have to study language. Language is dynamic. Words change over time in cultures, right? I'm not going to use that example, okay? But words, but I'll just use it now that I've said it. All right, so when, when we were in high school, when I was in high school, you know, decades ago now, you know, however many years ago, 27, 30 years ago, when, when we would say that you were dating somebody or going, well, let's go back to our parents' generation. It was like going steady, right? We didn't use that terminology. In fact, the young kids today are going to be a just crazily appalled by the terminology we use because it didn't mean then what it meant today. We would say, I'm, yeah, I hooked up with so-and-so. And that just meant we were going steady. Okay, I know that it's not what it means today, but, you know, and there's different wording. Language develops. It's dynamic. It changes over time. And so our, our goal in understanding biblical words used in the first century is not to take a modern dictionary and try to understand what they meant years ago. I'm not interested in what Webster's Dictionary tells me about the word repent. 
give credit to Noah Webster. Great work there in that dictionary. I just don't give a rip about his definition of repent because his definition of repent reflects the common culture of his day. I want to know what did Jesus mean by the word? What did John the Baptist mean by the word? What did Paul mean by the word? And how, not only that, but how did their audience understand that word when they said it? Doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't we want to do that with any biblical study? Let me give you another example. George Washington, first president of the United States, one of the country's founders. If you were to read an article today and you were to find out that George Washington was gay, literally right in print, it said George Washington was a gay man. Let me tell you what you wouldn't assume because you do this naturally. You would not assume that George Washington was a homosexual. Why not? Because that's not what the word meant in George Washington's day. It didn't mean that in the 1700s. It didn't mean that in the 1800s until it's, it's not until recently that that word made, uh, you know, we, we understood to mean homosexual. So if I was to read George Washington with gay, I would never argue with someone, oh, see, it proves he was a homosexual. That's foolish. That's anti-intellectual. I would say, no, based on the way the word was used there, he was a happier, joyful man. Because that's what the word meant. So I'm kind of setting the stage for this Greek etymology and how this is developed. Let's go all the way back before Bible times and look at a couple of usages from the classical Greek era, which is 900 to 300 BC. And I'm going to mention some names. You've probably heard of some of those, but Plato and Xenophon both used metanoia for changing one's mind. You can bear that out in the context of how they used it. Thucydides, he used it as an afterthought. Okay, he, he used this word. In fact, one of the stories that he records, this historian, he writes of a revolt in the city of Metalene. And, and the Athenian council had to address it. And their first decision was, we've got this city that's in revolt. Let's just kill everybody in the city. Let's just take them all out. And then they did something which is, which is actually great advice when you're really angry. Sleep on it before you do anything. So they slept on it. And the next morning... Thucydides records, they repented. They changed their mind. And guess what they decided to do? Only kill the participants in the revolt. The ones they could prove were involved in the revolt. They were to kill them, let everybody else live. So you can see in classical Greek, this was used to reflect a change of mind or an afterthought. Presented with additional information, they changed what they initially planned to do. They changed their mind or changed their thinking. Moving into the Koine Greek period, which is the period of the Bible, 300 BC to 100 AD. Interesting stories here uh, as we kind of look at these, but Polybius, he described this, this Dardani people. They had planned to attack Macedonia while, while King Philip was away. And basically they, they heard that he was going to be returning quickly. And it says that they changed their mind about the attack. So it's used to reflect a change in mind. Why did they change their mind? Because they gained new information about Philip's return. They said, ah, we don't want to take him on. So they changed their mind and they decided not to attack. This is actually one of my favorite stories. Plutarch tells a story of Sipsilis, who was a baby who was supposed to be slaughtered by a few assassins that were sent to kill him. True story. These assassins show up to kill this baby. I don't know if he's in a crib. I don't know where, he, where he's at, but they get to him. And as they go to kill him, the little baby looks up at him, smiles, and coos. And these men are like, man, we can't kill this baby. (laughs) This is terrible. 
It's, the text actually says they changed their mind. They left and they started home. And, and as history records it, I think they got a few miles down the road and they said, if the guy that hired us found out that we didn't kill this baby, he's going to kill us. And the text says they changed their mind again. Metanoia. This word that we're looking at. Changed their mind again and, and they did what? They went back to try to kill him. Praise God for Sipsilis. They couldn't find him the second time. So they couldn't get to him. So he lived. But you can see the usage of the word. That's the whole point. I, I'm just, I want to show you the etymological use of the word. And so the point really is simply this. It's, it's overwhelming in the Greek language how these words, these combination of words were used. It was an intellectual or mental change of thinking. It wasn't a change in one's emotions. That might have followed the change of thinking, but it's not incorporated in the word. And there's, it's not reflecting a change of actions, although that might be a subsequent result of changing one's thinking. So again, a quick comment, a couple, a couple quick more comments, and then I want to talk about, well, where did it go wrong, right? So if it's so clean and clear in Greek, how are we where we're at today? I want to talk about that too, but let me make a couple of quick comments just about uh, metanoia, metanoeo itself. Very important to understand that when people change their mind, using this biblical word, what they change their mind about is not implied in the word itself. What I mean by that is this. You can repent of something bad or you can repent of something good. We're using the biblical definition. Change your mind, change your mind. The problem when you come to the word repentance, it's like a lot of words in the Bible. If you see the word repentance, what word do we automatically assume is directly connected to that right there in that passage without even looking any closer? Sin. We just think sin is in that word. We think sin is in that word repent. It's not. We've got, we've got to change our mind about that. Okay? It's not automatically there. Okay? It can be there, and we'll look at some passages where it is. It's not automatically there. We've got to understand that. Salvation's the same way, right? We look at salvation. What do we automatically think? From hell. Salvation from hell. Every single time we see salvation. And then you go to, you go to 1 Timothy, and you're like, um, childbearing saves the woman. What? Having kids? Wow, Mother's Day. Wow, what a, what a great day to celebrate. It was your day of salvation, right? You know? That's not what he's talking about in that passage at all, right? We're talking about different tenses of salvation, different types of salvation. The one we typically think of is salvation from the penalty of sin. That's salvation from hell. But we also, the Bible talks about salvation from the power of sin in our daily life. That's called sanctification. It also talks about salvation from the very presence of sin in the future. That's called glorification. It also talks about salvation from drowning. When Peter's sinking, he uses the Greek word sozo, Lord, save me. He wasn't talking about hell. He was talking about save me from the waters of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going under, right? This is what we're talking about. So, so this word doesn't have sin implied in it. In fact, when you come to the Bible, this would be my encouragement. Every verse that uses the word repent is going to tell you who specifically needed to change their mind or thinking and what they needed to change their mind or thinking about. That's how we want to approach the word in the Bible. And then we're going to stay out of trouble oversimplifying some things. We're actually going to try to get to the heart of what the original author intended to the original audience. By the way, as an example of this, the moment you believed in Christ, you changed your mind. 
about what you used to believe in. You changed your mind and you decided to trust in Christ exclusively. Now, the way that worked for all of us might be different. Some of you may have grown up in a different religion that basically promoted that the church is your savior, that the process, the ritual is what saves you. And then you were presented with the gospel and you realized, no, a savior died for me, paid the penalty that I deserve. I'm going to trust in what he did for me. And you were convinced that you needed to change your mind about what you used to believe. You know, many people run around this world and they, they have just created a God in their own image. And they don't think that God's going to judge them or that God is going to pour out his wrath on their sinner, that there is actually a death penalty awaiting them. And they've just convinced themselves that God is a God of love. He doesn't judge anybody. He's going to weigh my, my good, if my good outweighs my bad, and he's going to grade on a really big curve. And I'm, I think everyone's going to be okay. People need to change their mind about that. When you put your trust in Christ, you've changed your mind about that because what you're saying is he died for me. He took the penalty I deserved and I'm gonna trust in what he did alone. And so everybody who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ has repented in a biblical sense. They've changed their mind about who or what they were trusting in to get them to heaven or to provide forgiveness of sins. Now, again, this is not a turning from sin and, and, and notice this, this is just a subtle distinction. Repentance is not a turning from sin. Rather, it's a changing of mind about who and what could solve your sin problem. You see that? Repentance puts the focus on you solving your sin problem. Faith in Jesus Christ puts the focus on the one who solved your sin problem. It's a totally different perspective when you talk about that. Now, by the way, could biblical repentance lead to a change of behavior? Yes, of course. Should it? Yes, of course. Yes, of course it should. But it's not contained in the word itself. That's the distinction that we're trying to make. And we've got to stop conflating these two concepts because it, it has the effectiveness of bumping the spotlight off of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And it basically says he didn't do enough. Jesus paid the bill and you're throwing your, your penny tip on top of it. How insulting, right? This, so this is what we want to stay away from. Ultimately, the meaning of the word repentance in our day has changed to reflect a change of behavior, not a change of thinking. I believe this has destroyed the biblical author's original intent of the word. Now, I, I wanted to go into detail here, but let me just say this. Do you know that when the temple was destroyed in AD 70 for the Jewish people, that the, the leaders of the Jewish religion at the time were very worried that many of the Jews would then leave the Jewish religion. And so they had to figure out a way to keep their interest because there was no temple sacrifice anymore. The temple was gone. There was no visible priesthood. So what would they do? Well, rabbinical Jude, what's become known as rabbinical Judaism took over. I want, you to under, I want you to see the connection here. And I want you to see this satanic influence behind the scenes as to what they came up with. Because they should have known better than anybody that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. They should have known that better than anybody. They've had visual aids for thousands of years testifying to this truth. And do you know what rabbinical Judaism has come up with? This is their substitute for blood atonement now because the temple's not there. Repentance, prayer, and good deeds. They are just like every other man-made religion in the world, and yet they've got truth beyond layers of truth to understand about their Messiah and what he would accomplish for them. 
It's tragic. In fact, they go on. They require five steps to achieve forgiveness of sins. And I want you to notice what's missing. I want you to notice what's included. It's called teshuva. Here are the five steps that they can achieve forgiveness of sins. Recognition of sin. Remorse. See the emotion. Desisting from sin. I mean, turning from sin. You see where that modern definition of repentance comes in? Restitution, making things right that you've wronged. And then confession of God. What's missing, by the way? The shedding of blood. The very thing the word of God says provides forgiveness of sins. They're missing it. And so this is a man-made, man-developed concept where we've taken a Greek word that didn't even mean what we think it means, and it has developed a life of its own. And it is super tragic. So the question becomes, what went wrong, right? What went wrong? How did we get from this clean Greek understanding to today when it's completely misunderstood? Well, let me just give you a quick history lesson. And, I, and again, quick history don't generally go together, but I'm going to try to move it quick. What we've got to understand is that in the early church history, within the first couple of hundred years after the apostles, there was some false teaching that arose. And it went something like this. Original sin and then all sins committed prior to baptism, water baptism, were removed by baptism. We've already got a problem because now they think water takes away sin, whereas Hebrews 9.22 said what? The shedding of blood takes away sin. There's got to be a death penalty. Getting wet doesn't do anything for you as it relates to your sins, right? The shedding of blood does. So this false teaching arose. Well, you think about the people you know in your life. If they heard that teaching, how would they respond? Think about it for a second. And, and you probably got it right. People waited until they were almost dead to be baptized. They're like, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to do it once. I'm going to wait until the very end. I'm going to make sure I get all these sins covered. Because if I do it too soon, then I'm, my life's going to really stink after that. I can't really go out and do anything. You know, That was the mindset. So they began to wait till near death. There were uh, you know, stories of people who were uh, you know, practically comatose, and they're just begging somebody to go baptize them really quick so they go to heaven. Tragic, tragic misunderstanding. So what did the pastors and Bible teachers do? They took them back to the Bible, right? No, <laughs> I wish. They pendulum swung wildly in the opposite direction. They didn't take them back to the Bible. They didn't reemphasize the finished work of Jesus Christ. They didn't reemphasize this concept that you deserve death. Your Savior died for you. You have to trust in him alone. for some. They didn't go back there. In fact, they just developed another error as a pendulum swung wildly to the other side. And repentance became the cure for post-baptismal sins. So it's like, and by the way, why would the church this time want people to get baptized earlier? And I'm going to make a statement, whether you agree or not, that's okay. It's an opinion. I think it was all about this. Because if I can get them baptized at age 30, then I start getting their money at age 30. If they wait till they're baptized, till they're 80, I'm not going to get much out of them. So I want to extract, and they, I don't think they had pure motives. You know, I, that's just my opinion. I probably shouldn't impugn their motives, but that's my opinion. And so repentance became this cure for post-baptismal sin. So they wanted people to get baptized. Oh, well, what happens to our sins after we get baptized? Oh, repentance will take care of that. How did they define it? Feeling sorry for it. Confessing and then doing acts of penance. This is where all of this came from. 
And so you can see the, the meaning went from a change of thinking or a change of mind to a change of emotion and a change of behavior. This became the thinking. And right around this time, as this theology is being developed and perpetrated, if you will, on the people, Latin is starting to become the spoken language of the known world. Okay, we're moving away from Greek. Latin's becoming the spoken language. And so we're going to do a couple of quick Latin lessons here. I'll move quickly. The Greek words metanoeo, which we looked at before, metanoia, were then translated into Latin by words meaning to do acts of penance or acts of penance. This is what ended up happening. And so um, one of the central ideas of the Latin word that was, this is kind of the base word of the word that they translated that became our version of repentant, repentance. It's uh, penitentia. It derives from the root pena, which means pain. <laughs> That's crazy. Pain in thinking. I mean, it is painful to think sometimes. I guess that's the connection, but that's not, a, that's not a connected concept. In fact, it reflected suffering in view of being liable to punishment. And so it came to mean grief over an act for which satisfaction might be demanded. When you add the prefix re to that, it, it talks about looking back or looking again with sorrow upon something that you've done amiss. And it it has this inclusion of emotion. It has this inclusion of restitution, doing things to... Re- and you can see where our modern meaning of repentance is derived from. This kind of took hold. There's some reasons for that, which we'll look at here in a second. Let me just bring up this quote by, by a writer, uh, I think in the 18th, 19th century, Trevor Walton. He really hits this well. He says, the core of this Latin word is not mind, but pain. The note of it's not emancipation, but of condemnation. The scope of it is not spiritual, but judicial. It flees the evil and fear of penalty of the punitive action of God or of its own conscience. The word, this Latin word, rose with the Roman civilization into an expression closely identified with the criminal law. It became a designation for all grades of punishment inflicted under the law, whereby those who had offended or injured the community, made their peace with it, satisfied justice. In a word, they purged themselves. By doing what? Bearing the penalty, which had been fixed upon as a measure, the degree of their transgression. Now, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but let me just point out something. Who am I counting on to bear the penalty for my transgressions? Not me. Him. That's the message of the gospel. Christ bore my sins in his own body on the tree, the just for the unjust. That's me. The second you put the responsibility of bearing your own penalty, which is what this Latin word did that translated the Greek word metanoia, metanaeo, you can see how it just took on a life of its own. And here's what ended up happening? Jerome produced the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. And guess what word he used? The exact word that we're talking about, repententia. It contained the ideas of regret, remorse, leading to a change of behavior, doing acts of penance to make things right. And because this version became the Bible of the church for over 1,100 years, you can see how the Latin word began to affect and shape the theology of this Greek word metanoia, metanoia. It's, it's tragic, 
But that's why, if you ask me why we're here today, that's why I think we're here today. It's based on this. And by the way, the continuation kept going when English versions of the Bible came out. And part of the reason for that is Wycliffe, when translating the first English Bible, he relied more heavily on the Latin Vulgate than he did the Greek and Hebrew texts. It's just what he had available. This is what he did. Theodore Beza, another, he rendered metanoia with a Latin word that meant change from folly. Again, a behavior-based focus. The Roman Catholic Douay version did the same, and then hence the reason for the carryover. And really, Beza's translation, Latin in his Greek text, became the basis for a lot of English translations. And so you can see how this just kind of, it molded the theology, and this is what kind of carried down. And if someone would have just said, stop, wait a minute, what did it mean to Paul? What did it mean to Peter? What did it mean to Jesus when they used it? And just stop the presses and just said, let's look for that meaning this could have been avoided, I think, you know, possibly. Let me make a couple of really quick, con- well, not really quick. <laughs> Let me make a couple of concluding comments, and then I want to look, I do want to look quickly at some, some verses with the word repent. Because if, if this is the first time you've heard it, you're, you're, there's a battle going on in your mind right now. It's like, can I trust this guy? Can I trust what he's saying? I get you. I understand that. I don't expect you to leave here in full agreement for me, with me, especially if this is the first time you've ever heard it. It's probably challenging. You might feel like I'm stepping on your toes. Again, I apologize for that. Not my intention at all. Um, But I do want to challenge thinking on this. And and again, the ultimate goal is I want the spotlight to stay on Jesus Christ. I just don't want it moved. I just don't want it bumped. And so I kind of see this doing this. So a couple of quick concluding comments, and then let's look uh, at a couple of passages uh, quickly. So for many people in our day, this phrase, repent uh, repent of or from sin, means that you've got to turn from your sin in order to be saved. This is how many people use it. This is how many people understand it. Again, their emphasis is a change in conduct, not a change of mind, which is what the biblical word means. And those of you that have studied the Bible and read the Bible, let me just ask you a question. Do people get saved by changing their conduct? Is that how people get saved? I think we would answer that question really clearly. No, of course not. It's not by works, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's not of yourselves, and yet, we're very comfortable oftentimes using this phrase, repent or turn from your sins, as a prerequisite to be saved. Do people prove that they're saved by changing their conduct? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, because behavior has nothing to do with how you're born into the family. We've used that example before. Have, you, have your kids ever disobeyed you? Yes, they have. I know that to be true. Does that mean they weren't born into your family? Behavior has no no bearing on whether or not they were born. Birth happens at a moment in time when the mother delivers the baby. Happy Mother's Day again. But in spiritual terminology, birth happens when you put your faith in the finished work of Christ. You're born into the family. Whether you behave going forward has no impact on whether or not you were born into the family. That's what we're talking about. So we're not talking about a change of conduct. If we're talking about a change of conduct in order to get saved, how can this phraseology not be a works gospel? How could it not fall into the category of every other works method of getting saved? How could it not fall into that category? And, and, and I think the answer is it, it has to fall into that category if it's requiring a change of conduct. Now, those who teach this, by the way, they don't mean that the person must be perfect or sinless, but what they mean is that the person must be sinning less than they were before. 
And they'll say this. This is actually a quoted phrase from people who teach this. It's not that they have to be sinless, because that's impossible, but they have to be sinning less. Now the questions just stop. By, by the way, and if they're not sinning less than they were before, what will these persons say? They didn't truly repent. See, this is where the adverbs start coming in. Because they're trying to observe by external behavior whether or not they trusted in their heart the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do you evaluate what happened in someone's mind or heart accurately? It's hard to. You just Oftentimes you don't do it accurately. But this is what they're trying to do. By the way, how is this measured biblically? Sinning less? Do you know, do you know that when I, um, when I started getting interested in spiritual things, I immediately stopped drinking. I immediately stopped smoking. I, it took me a little while to stop cussing. That kind of stayed with me for a little bit. But there were lots of big verbal changes. And I would have told you three years in that, man, I'm sinning less than I am now. But guess what happens as you mature as a Christian? You start to realize the sins of the heart. You start to realize the sins of the mind. You start to realize that your motives, oftentimes, even though you're doing good things, your motives absolutely stink. You thought you were doing something for Jesus Christ, and you weren't. It was all about you. It was all about the praise you would receive. It's all about how good you look to somebody else. And as you grow spiritually, you often, you often realize what a wretch you truly are. And you actually appreciate the grace of God a little bit more because three years after I was saved, I was like, I, I know why God saved me. I'm pretty impressive. And here I am, you know, whatever, I'd do the math real quick, 26 years later, and, I, and I'm like, how? How me? I, I like to quote, I think it was, we were kind of critiquing Martin Luther earlier <laughs> for some things uh, in Sunday school, but I like a quote he gave one time. He says, when I look at me, I don't see how Jesus can save me. But when I look at him, I don't see how he can. <laughs> That's what we begin to learn as we understand the race of God. So how is this measured biblically? Well, typically the argument is made if one is continually or habitually committing the same sin that they were before they saved, that they never repented of that sin. That's how they typically do it. Now the question becomes, how habitual is habitual? And what Bible verse do you go to to show that? And people say, well, once a year? Is that habitual enough to disprove that you were ever saved? No, that's probably okay. Once a year is probably pretty good. What about once a month? Uh, you're on a border. What about once a week? What about once a day? And again, where's this at in the scripture? Where's the line defined in the scripture? It's just, just generic. Well, if it's too habitual, what's too habitual? No one can define it. And you know why it's not in the scriptures? Because God doesn't want your focus on your sin. He wants your focus on your sin bearer. <laughs> we're looking in the wrong spot. We're looking at our life, trying to determine if we're saved, instead of looking at the Savior who saved us, who did the very thing required to save us from the wrath of God, to pay our penalty, provide a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. We're just looking at the wrong place. And hence, there's no security there. By the way, I, I, I would have a question for somebody that taught this. What if someone commits a new sin after they get saved than they ever did before they got saved? Then what would you say about that person? They actually had nothing to repent of. They're just introducing new sins after they got saved. I had a friend of mine, he's a pastor now. He became an alcoholic after he got saved because he got saved at five years old. What do you do with that scenario? 
And let me tell you where people who teach this and who hold fast to this now, I'm not going to mention any names, but let me tell you what they're wondering out loud now in their writings. They're wondering if children can even get saved for this very point. Because how do, how do children get saved and then commit all these sins that they never committed before five years old? You think a five-year-old committed adultery? Probably not. Not probably not. They, they haven't. How do these kids get saved at five and then commit all these new sins afterward if somehow repentance is needed to be saved? You see what I mean? It just creates all sorts of things. And why are we still talking about sin when we've got a sin bearer that solved the sin problem? I mean, I get it for the Christian life. I get it for reward in eternity. I get all that. I get it for fellowship with the Lord. Why are we talking about it as a birth issue still when you've got a sin bearer? And so this is kind of, the point is we're kind of working through. Again, if repentance requires some level of improving one's behavior by sinning less, again, how can it not be a works-oriented response to the gospel? And this is why faith is the only response given in the Bible, because it's the only response that accords with a finished work. It's the only response that fits hand in glove with the concept of grace, God giving you something that you don't deserve. Repentance would say you have to merit it in some way or prove it out in some way through your merit. That is not salvation by grace by any stretch of imagination. Now, I know they try to get around it and say, I, I wasn't even going to say what they say. It just it doesn't make sense. And so, and a lot of it goes back to this false understanding of the word. Now, we've got a few minutes. I'm going to move quickly. Maybe you can write these down as we go. But we want to look at some quick examples from the word of God where repentance is used. And all I want to do in all these examples is really quickly, who is being told to change their mind or thinking and what are they being told to change their mind or thinking about? That's all I want to do in all these passages. We're going to move quickly. Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so you're going to have to Trust me a little bit on context. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jewish people. There are Jewish religious leaders there. He's talking to a Jewish people as baptism. He's telling them to repent. That's who he's talking to. What is he telling them to change their mind about? Well, if you will go down in your verse, into verse nine, notice what I've got highlighted. Do not think. What is he telling them? Quit thinking this way and now change your mind. This is what he's talking about. And what are they to change their mind about? Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What did they need to change their mind about? They were not getting in the kingdom simply because they were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's physical children. Physical lineage will not get you into the kingdom. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus what? Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not enough to be the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You also need to be a son of God. And that happens through the new birth. So what is John the Baptist telling them to change their mind about? Their pride in their status as Jews. Their understanding about how they would obtain acceptable righteousness. And this is why when you look at the Bible, Paul goes on to clarify what John meant when he preached repentance in Acts 19.4. Paul said this, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying what? to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ. In order to get into the kingdom, guys, 
You have to trust in the Messiah and what he's going to do for you. You need to change your mind about what you think. Do you think that John was actually telling the Pharisees, y'all need to quit smoking, cussing, and chewing? Those guys didn't do any of that stuff. They were the impeccable standard of righteousness. You know, they had the proverbial, you know, anyways, I'll keep going. Acts 2.38, then Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who's he talking to? What's he telling them to change their mind about? Again, he's talking to an all-Jewish audience on the day of Pentecost. What is he telling them to change their mind about? Just go to the verses right before that, verses 36 and 37. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So what were they to change their mind about? Simply put, who Jesus was. 50 days earlier, 40 days earlier, they killed him. They needed to change their mind about him. He wasn't a criminal deserving of death. He was their Messiah. This is what he's telling them to change their mind about. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Again, they needed to change their mind about their approach to God. Why? Because he's going to judge them based on the standard of perfect righteousness. He's talking to a heathen audience there. Acts 20, 21, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he talking about there? Jews needed to change their mind about God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. They needed to change their mind about that. Gentiles needed to change their mind about God too because they were worshiping many gods. They need to realize there was one God. And that he was going to be the one that judged them at the end of the age according to a righteous standard. And by the way, this would happen if they would put their faith in Jesus Christ. If they believed the message about Jesus, they would have changed their mind about God. So all of these things kind of come together. Acts 26, 20. But declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea. By the way, notice how he separates repentance from a couple of things here. And then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That should show us right there that repentance and doing acts of penance or repentance and behavior, although they can be related, they're not one and the same things. Behavior or acts of penance or, as he says here, works befitting repentance are subsequent to a change of mind. Let's keep moving. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, right? This, this passage, it gives a lot of people trouble. For it's impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And a lot of people will read that and say it's impossible to renew them to salvation. That's not what the verse says. It says it's impossible to renew them again to a change of mind. Why did they... Why was this true? Because they were turning away from the finished work of Christ of whom they had trusted in and they were going back to temple sacrificial worship. And he's saying, if you go back to the temple and you start sacrificing animals, it is gonna be impossible to change your mind about the value of the finished work of Christ going forward. This is what I believe he's talking about in Hebrews chapter six. Again, it doesn't say salvation. Very familiar passage, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this just explains that God is long-suffering because he's given time to more people to change their mind. That's the whole point. By the way, just one last point. You know, the verb repent is used more in the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible. It's used 12 times. What's ironic about it is that eight out of the 12 uses are in the chapters dealing with believers in churches. You can see all the references there in Revelation 2 and 3. So again, it's not a response, uh, the way that it's taught to turn from sin to be saved. But you will say, I will say this, that if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you did repent biblically. You changed your mind about who or what you were trusting in. So in that sense, it's kind of built into the exhortation to believe because we're telling you, we're encouraging you, trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you exclusively. Don't trust in him and your works. Don't trust in him and your baptism. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so again, we're just hopeful that we can keep the spotlight on what Jesus has accomplished and focus on him. Next week, uh, we're going to jump back into the book of John. So get your, get your books out, your, your book of John ready. We're going right back into chapter four. We're going to kind of pick up right there verse by verse starting again next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, I thank you for this morning. Again, our heart's desire is to simply exalt our Savior, and not to rob him of any glory that is due him. We so appreciate uh, the value of what he accomplished. We want that to be more preeminent in our minds as, as we study your word. And Lord, just really quickly say a quick prayer for our mothers. We love them. We pray that they would feel uh, appreciated today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.